0: And, and so we were, it was a light week anyway. <laughs> um, this week we're gonna be starting a new series. Um, we're gonna be, we're gonna be doing a series on the life of David. Um, and, and this, this is gonna kinda of cover the gambit of his life. We're gonna start, um, before he becomes king. And we're gonna end, um, at the end, right? And, and we're going to try and hit a couple of different things, and this will be through the month of February. Um, yeah, February. Um, and and then we'll be um, moving on to Easter. So um, um, for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about David. And I, I thought to start out, um, I, I wanted to explain kind of the, the significance of David to these, these people, to the, the Israelites. Um, David was like their Abraham Lincoln. Right, or or like George Washington or or Teddy Roosevelt, if they could if they could carve his face in the side of a mountain, he was that guy. I mean, he was a really really big deal. And and David was the quintessential like action hero um, of his time, right? I, I'm I'm talking the guy who um, if there was a challenge to be faced, he knocked it down and stomped on it. Right, like he—he he was that guy. He was the guy that that stood up and fought when nobody else would. Um, he was the guy that that never backed down from a challenge. He was—he was—he was a man, right? Like manly man, um, like me. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. At it. Um, and, and 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 um in our culture, I think we get sort of mixed message regarding what men ought to be. And a big part of what we're going to be looking at here is what is it, you know. How does how does the life of David teach us about what men ought to be, um, um, ladies? I'll I'll talk about things that relate to you as well. Don't worry. Um, but but I really wanted to focus, you know, for the next few weeks on this topic. What, what does God expect out of men, right? Um, and and we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about a bunch of different things. But but we're going to start off with um, a little earlier. First um, Samuel thirteen. If you're following along in your Bible, and and I'm going to offer a little historic context here. Okay. Um, Everybody knows the story of Moses, right? Built the big boat. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, yeah. <laughs> Moses, Moses um, brought the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt. Moses brings them out of slavery, and on the way they get lost for about 40 years. Everybody knows this part, right? Um, they wander around in the desert for 40 years. Moses dies, and they're finally allowed to go into the Promised Land. So, so the Jewish people enter where Israel is, Right? And they they occupy the land. They fight this huge war, and then there's a period of about 500 years when the judges ran things. Um, and and what that was was where they didn't have a king. They were tribes based on like descendancy from one of the twelve, um, you know, Joseph's twelve brothers. Um, and so they were there were tribes, and they lived in this area. And whenever a problem happened, God would pick someone to lead them. Right? We we all know the story of. Um, um, that guy who was really strong. We all do know that story, right? <laughs> Samson. Um, Samson was one of the judges. What, what was going on then was the Phil- Philistines. I almost said Philippines. The Philistines had occupied the land, and they. Um, Samson's job was to chase them off, right? Or Deborah was one of the judges, and she she led the army for a little while um, um, against against Israel's enemies at the time. And so so there was this period where it was sort of like chaotic. You know, and if something came up and the people were like, God, we need help, God would pick someone who'd come out like Gideon and he'd fight a war and chase off the bad guys and, and life would get back to normal again and they'd keep going. We get to Samuel. Samuel is is the last prophet of that period. He's the last like informal speaking for God guy. And what happens is the people gather up and they say, You know what? We're sick of this judge's business. We don't like it we want a king everybody else has a king we want a king and samuel says to them guys god is your king and he takes care of you he always has and they say we don't care we want a king and you know samuel's heartbroken he says you know they're they're not listening to me and god says to him they're not rejecting you they're rejecting me and so finally god gives in and says i will give you a king and they give him god gives him saul who's the first king of israel right um, this is where we're going to kind of pick it up. Saul has been king for a little while, um, a few years, depending on how you look at it. The way w- I'm coming at it is the 30-year perspective. If you've got a King James Version, it's going to say something a little different. I don't want to talk about that right now. If you really want to know, ask me later. Because it would take a long time, and it's not central to what we're talking about. Okay, so um, Saul starts out as king, um, and, and he's king for a little while. and We pick up in 1 Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew a trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Okay, so here's what's going on. They're occupied, right? this this land, they've got Philistines everywhere and they've set up garrisons. Garrisons are a little like forts. And these forts, they would keep small parts of the army and if there were problems, the garrison would send out soldiers and they'd beat up whoever was causing the problems and they'd come back, right? Sometimes they'd go on raids. They would show up in the neighboring villages and they'd burn it down and take whatever they wanted and they'd go home. Um, and, and this is not a really pleasant way to live, right? Like if guys from down in Fort Benton came up here every once in a while and burned down a house and stole your cows or whatever, um that would be a problem, right? And so um Um what Saul does is he gathers up a group of men and he says, We're gonna go out and we're gonna we're gonna do some fighting. And and specifically, his son, um Jonathan, gathers up a thousand men and they hit one of these garrisons. Have any of you guys seen that movie Braveheart? The first battle in Braveheart um, is is against a garrison. That, to give you some mental perspective, it's sort of an outpost fort, and and they go and they they hit this garrison and they kill the soldiers who are there and they kill the governor for the area and and um, you know they win right, so it's a yay moment. But the Philistines get ticked off, right? So Saul sends out a message, hey guys, we started a fight, everybody needs to come help. And, and so he starts gathering up the army, and they go to Gilgal. Now, if you read the whole book of Samuel, which we don't have time for today, I'd recommend it on your own, um, you'd learn that Gilgal has a religious significance. It's the place where Saul was when he became king, right? Samuel came along, he made Saul king in Gilgal. And every year, Saul would go back to Gilgal. He would hang out for seven days, and then Samuel would do a sacrifice, and it was a part of this religious observance. It was expected of Saul. Um, and he would do it every year, right? The, the text implies that this is a regular occurrence. And so the army comes to Saul while he's there waiting for this religious occurrence, like participating in this, in this observance. Everybody with me? Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel... 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Micmash east of Bethaven. I'm going to show a map in a second to give you some perspective, but 60,000 or 30,000 chariots, right? They're a little like the tanks of the era. You know, you'd stand on a chariot and the chariot goes zipping around and you'd have guys with bows and arrows or spears or whatever and you would shoot and like chariots were were kind of the big like tough tough military thing to have at the time it was high technology right like it was a big deal to have chariots um and they had horsemen which is something else we don't see the jewish people having in fact if you read to the end of the chapter you'll learn that the jews didn't have swords like except for the king which whatever um, and and so um they're out there and and all of these enemies show up and how many how many jewish soldiers were there 3 3000 right 2,000 with Saul and a 1,000 with Jonathan. They were elsewhere. You're right. So technically it was two there. But there were 3,000 in the army for the Jews. And there were many, many tens of thousands for the for the Philistines. How are the Jews going to do? Probably not very good, right? Like this is not the situation you want to be in. When you show up for a gang fight and there are three of you and there are a hundred of them, you're in trouble, right? Um, and they all have armors and swords and everything else and you have plowshares, you know, and and pruning hooks that you've made into spears. You know, these guys they're they're not well armed. So they're there and they're a little nervous. Um when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, the people were hard pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. So they see all tens of thousands of the Philistines show up and a bunch of the Jews are like, Have a good day and they take off. So that 3,000 diminishes noticeably. And what's Saul doing? Is he planning? No, he's waiting for a religious ceremony. He's hanging out and waiting for God. Um, how'd you like to be in that spot? (laughs) All right, guys, let's go fight. Wait, hold on. We got to wait for Samuel to get here. And Samuel's old as dirt at this point. So they're waiting for an old man to show up. And, and it's, it's got to be intimidating, right? I mean, I mean, how many folks like waiting when there's something to be taken care of? Or when there's, you know, a threat out there that's gotta be dealt with, how many of y'all like hanging out and waiting? It's, it's not a fun prospect, right? But it's what he's been commanded to do. Um, so he's in this spot, people start running away, and actually it goes so far as to say, also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people followed him with trembling. So, his army has literally left the country in some instances. <laughs> it's a little like, you know, the enemy shows up and you run to Canada. No, he'd never do that. <laughs> Not on purpose, anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and the guys who are left are afraid, and they're all like, hey, you know, we're going to lose. In fact, we find out that Saul is down to 600 guys. If you read to the end of the chapter, he's got 600 guys left with him. They're in trouble right? Not a little bit of trouble, a lot of trouble. Um, here's my map, okay? So, to give you some perspective, Gilgal is on the top left. See the top left? That would be my left, your right. Uh, <laughs> the top right, and then um, the place where the Philistine army is is that blue P, right? And actually, when we go on, it says that the Philistines sent out raiding parties. So, they said, you know what? There's no army here to fight us, Let's just go and burn the place down. And so they send raiding parties in every direction, which is what the blue arrows are, and they start burning villages and pillaging as punishment for what Saul did. And you know why they can do that? Because they got six got 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and lots and lots of soldiers. They can, right? And while this is going on, what's Saul doing? Waiting for a religious ceremony. He's waiting. Um, eventually they end up parking on either side of a, a gorge, and their armies are there, like all, you know, what, 1,500 Jews that are left, and thousands and thousands of the enemy, and it goes very well for the Jewish people, but not for today. Um, now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. He says, you know what? I am about sick of waiting for this guy. I'm going to do the ceremony and then we're going to go fight. right? Because his, his army's leaving. What else is he going to do? He can't fight them by himself. Although if you go to the end of the chapter, he doesn't do very much at all. His son goes and fights them by himself and does really well. And they end up winning because his son goes charging into the enemy camp by himself, which makes sense. He was one of the only two guys of swords. Um, <laughs> but, but it goes very well for him. And so like, like what Saul is doing here is he's being nervous because he thinks, I have to do this, right? This is my job. I need to take care of it. So he takes and he disobeys his direction. His direction is, wait seven days, which he's been doing for years. Wait seven days. Samuel will come and he'll offer a sacrifice. And he says, you know, no time, I'm doing it. Because we've got to make God happy before we go fight. Can you make God happy by doing the wrong thing? Guess where this story is going. Um, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Saul finds out. Now they've showed up before he can make a fellowship offering. So he's made an offering to make God happy and he's supposed to make an offering to say I'm in community with you God and God sends his prophet then. Stop him. He's not in community with me. We're not on the same team. Because he disobeyed. He did a wrong thing. It was a very simple wrong thing. Does it seem like a big deal? Not really, right? Um, But to God, obedience is a big deal. Um, So he goes out to meet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appropriate days, appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself to offer burnt offerings. (laughs) So whose fault is it? It's Samuel's, because he didn't get there fast enough, right? It's the army's fault, because they're deserting. It's, uh let's see, people deserting, you didn't show up. The Philistines' fault, because they're going to come kill us all, right? It's everybody's fault, but Saul's. Everybody else's fault. He stands up and says, oh, I know I did a wrong thing, but it's that guy's fault, it's not You know, these guys, and I made myself do it. It was a horrible thing, but I had to. So I forced myself. Has anybody ever told a lie like this? (laughs) It's called justifying, right? Like, oh, I had to. You don't understand. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. Now, the word foolishly has lost a lot of its weight. in For the Jewish people, the word that we translate fool in the Bible is the most offensive thing you can call a Jewish person, Right? It, it means that they're they 're incorrect in their interactions with others and they 're incorrect with their interactions with God right like so he, he, he lays them out, he, he uses very strong language to describe how dumb Saul is at this point. You have acted foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you for now the Lord would have established. Sorry, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the most extreme of punishments he gets, right? Samuel announces, first off, you disobeyed God, and because of that, what was going to happen... Was your descendants, were going to be kings in this country forever. Forever. Now they won't. You're it, right? Now Saul is king for a long time yet after this. It's not like this is the last day for him. But he disobeys God. And he says, you know what, because you did this, God's already picked the guy who's going to take your place. And he's a man after his own heart. This is the key phrase here, right It is one of the only times in the Bible when you see a person like labeled a man after god 's own heart why because that 's not how people are god 's heart is like different. God is a different like being um, but this is a big deal like and something, this is what we 're going to focus on here um, this idea of man after his own heart i um, going to jump ahead. First off, the big ideas. Saul parallels Adam. We all know the story of Adam, right? Adam eats the fruit, right? Adam, like, disobeys God's rule. Um, so it starts off with, Adam was the first ruler of the earth, Right? Because, because he was created, he was by himself, he named the animals, which shows that he's in command. He would, you know, he was the ruler over the earth, at the same way that Saul was the first ruler over the king, you know, the people of Israel. So we have our first parallel. Second one, he disobeys one of God's commands. God gives Adam one command, right? You had one thing to do, and he blows it, right? And same thing happens with Saul. Um, neither owns up. When Adam, Right? When Adam is caught by God, God says, what did you do? And he says, that woman that you gave me made me eat the fruit, right? <laughs> Whose fault is it? It's Adam's fault. Who does he blame? Everyone else. <laughs> I, he, so we have a parallel here. The other thing is, um, Adam would have lived forever. People were not designed to die right i 'll give you a little bit of immediate proof for this. How many of you guys have had somebody close to you die, and it feels like the wrong thing happened this shouldn 't be this way right it 's because in our very nature, in our design is eternity um, and when things don 't last forever, it hurts because it 's not the way it 's supposed to be um, And so, whereas Adam would have lived forever and reigned over the earth forever, the same thing is true of Saul. Saul's descendants would have been kings forever. And actually, we find this with David, right? Um, The other big idea here is, we see that um, David and Jesus parallel. Um, And there's a whole mess of times where Jesus is referred to as David, right? Um, Amongst other things, first off, when David... um, David hits a point where God says to him, he says, listen, I, I love you, David. And every, every king in Israel will be one of your descendants from here on out. Everyone. It's the promise. It's called the Davidic covenant for the really technical word, right? But it's God's agreement with David. Every one of your descendants will be a king here. And that would have been Saul's, but it's not. In the same way as rulership and eternal, this eternal rulership would have been Adam's and would have been Saul's, it's David and then Jesus, right? Um, Everybody get that? It was a little confusing. Secondly, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, and we find the same thing is true of Jesus. Right? Jesus lives his life as a man who's passionately in love with the world and in love with God, and he lives out God's commands in a way that's that's energetic, that's that's exciting, that's like hardcore through and through. Right? And um, so we see this man after God's own heart. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the two two of the faces of manhood. In the series that we're going through, we're, there are four faces of manhood. We're going to talk about two of them um, as to how God designed men to be. Um, and I want to, before I jump into that, i got a passage here. This is um, Romans uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick out bits here. Um, what Paul, who wrote this letter, is talking about, Paul is talking about how... Um, what we see in Adam and what we see in Jesus, okay? Um, Therefore, as sin, just, I'm going to blow it right out of the gate. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Um, So he starts out in verse 12 saying, hey, through one guy, Adam, death entered the world, right? Um, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not given power um, when there is no law. Therefore, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those who had never sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who has a type of him who was to come. That was really confusing. What he's saying is, um, between Adam and Moses, there wasn't any commandments to break, but people still died for sin, right? Because sin was there, regardless of whether or not there are rules, because sin is built into us, all of us. Sorry, guys. We're all sinful through and through. We're stuck. Um Nevertheless, I'm sorry, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions, resulting in justification. So he's comparing Adam and Jesus, right? He says, listen, Adam commits one sin, sin goes out and infects everybody, right? Whereas with Jesus, all of this sin prompts God to send Jesus to die and take punishment for us so we can be forgiven. Everybody with me? This Adam Jesus, Adam Jesus. This is a recurring parallel thing that's built into the New Testament, and lo and behold, it's built into the story of David. And David takes the spot of Jesus, which is why David's a big deal, and understanding him is a big deal. Um, for if by one um, to read the same thing again, sorry. So then, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men for as through the the one man's disobedience the many were made sinner even, a, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous this is a whole sermon on its own which we're not going to do today the big idea here romans 5 right one guy screws up and death comes out of it right one man does right and life comes out of it um, David stands in the place of representing Jesus. And we're going to come back to this over and over again for the next month, so it's important, right? So what do we do with this? Um, when we look at the life of David, we're going to see two faces. We're going to see the king, right? And part of how men are designed is each of us has this aspect of who we are, right? Um, it's the part of us that is, that is um, energetic for doing the right thing. Right? Do you guys, you understand what I mean? This is the part of us, like, as men, that says, this is right and this is wrong, and we do what's right and we don't do what's wrong. Right? Um, it's how we're ideally designed. It's the part of us that says, um, this injustice won't stand because we're gonna stop it. Right? Um, if you wanna see this in David, um, David, there's a point in time when, um, the families Like, of the people who lived in the town he lived in were all kidnapped by enemy raiders, and David goes out and slaughters all of them and brings his family and his servants' families home. Right? David is like tough. He says, that's the wrong thing, and I'm going to do something about it. Right? He was not a guy to mess with, (laughs) um, because the right thing was what was gonna happen, and the wrong thing is what we were gonna fight against. It's built into all men. Um, you see this in different ways in David. This isn't a parallel to Jesus, but the king face of David, um, when David's called out for sin, we all know the story of David and Bathsheba. Two weeks, we'll look at David and Bathsheba. Um, it's the soap opera part of David's life. <laughs> um, but, but when David is called out by Nathan, Nathan comes, sits face to face with David and says, you know what? You, you killed your neighbor so you could steal his wife. And David, who has the power to have Samuel's head cut off, or Nathan's head cut off, right? I mean, he's king, he's absolute ruler, he can do whatever he wants. He could have Nathan's whole family killed if he felt like it, right? How does David respond? He says, you're right, I'm wrong. Um, I've sinned before God, and he repents. Like, he owns up when he's wrong. Why? Because right is right, and wrong is wrong. We do what's right, we resist what's wrong. Everybody with me? This is the king face. It's built into all men. Um, he recognizes God's will is supreme. He says, this is what God wants me to do, so this is what I'm going to do. Um, the way I would relate to this um, for, for my life, honestly, when it came time to move here, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not we could pull it off. And I said, well, this is what God wants us to do. This is the way we're going to go, right? To Montana. Um, <laughs> Some other parallels here. We see this in Christ, right? Actually, we'll start out David's example of it. There's a point in time when David is running from Saul. Saul has decided he's going to kill David. David flees and has an army chase him. <laughs> so David and like five other guys are running and an army is chasing him. And what does David do? David like hides because he can't fight an army. And one day while he's hiding in a cave and he's asleep... In comes Saul, and Saul lays down and takes a nap, like ten feet away from him. And so David could solve his problem right here, right? You just go over there and stab Saul in the head, and the story's over. You know, and he's free and he's safe. But he looks at Saul and he says, "God picked Saul to be king, and no man should ever raise his hand against folks who like like God picks. I can't do that." And so he refuses to kill him. And in fact, even later, when Saul himself is killed in battle, a man comes up to David and says, Hey, I killed Saul. I killed your enemy. David kills him on the spot and says, You know what? He may have been my enemy, but God picked him. And you don't ever raise your hand against a man God picks. Right? Like, that is that is a standard. The easy way out was not the right way out, so he doesn't take it. We see it in Jesus, right? This is the... Finest example of this. Jesus, the day of the crucifixion. He's in the garden. He's praying. He's begging God. He says, if there is any other way, any other way, let me out of this. But not my will, but yours. Right? Did you bring one for me? Um, So... This is the do the right thing no matter what. In fact, actually, Peter takes a sword and strikes down one of the guys who's arresting Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, I could call 10,000 angels out of the sky right now. I don't need you. He always had the power to stop the crucifixion, right? But he did it because it was God's will. This is this is the do the right thing face of manhood. This is how all men are made. We do the right thing whether we like it or not because it's the way God made us. Um Dependence on God. Um, we see this in David's life, um, um, over and over and over again, actually. David goes out and faces Goliath. What does he do? He refuses to take armor. He refuses to take a sword. He finds some rocks in a stream, in a stream for a sling. They always show little pebbles. They were probably, you know, softball-sized rocks. I mean, they were big rocks. Um, he prays and says, God's going to help me win this. I can only win it if God is on my side. And so that's all that really matters. And he goes out and he faces a guy who's like Andre the Giant. Those of you guys who don't know about 80s pro wrestling, Andre the Giant was like eight feet tall and he weighed about 600 pounds and he was a monster, right? And that was without armor. He wore like wrestling gear, which is gross. Um, <laughs> but, but this guy comes out and, and he's got spears and armor and swords and he's like scary, Right? And David says, God will take care of me. I will do this. Um, we see it in Jesus. There's the story of Jesus where he prays and thanks God for the food and breaks it up and hands it out, and all of a sudden there's enough to feed 5,000 people, right? He could have just done it. He could have commanded the food to exist. He could have commanded the rocks to turn into bread. What does he do? Turns to God, thanks God for the provision, does it, right? Why? Because he's dependent on God. Um, this is what like like it is to be a man. It's it's to recognize God's will is supreme. It's to repent, and own up for sin. It's um, to be dependent on God. It's to be sincere in everything we do. Um, some of you guys know guys like this who aren't sincere in anything they do, and you talk to them, and the whole time you're talking to them, you think you're probably lying to me right now, or you're saying what I want to hear. Don't point at me. <laughs> Um, the sincerity of life, we see it in how Jesus lived, right? Jesus spent time with people who everybody hated. He spent time with people who were social rejects. And he did it no matter what. No matter who was looking. No matter what anybody said. He was a man like who lived with sincerity. Um, who lived passionately. Who, When he walked into the temple and he saw people selling things, like turning God's like house into a store, he gets ticked off and chases everybody out with a whip. One of the best stories from Jesus' life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He takes it seriously. Um, And he acts with joy before God. Um, We'll talk about this probably next week. Um, The way David lived, David lived as a man who was like overjoyed that he was a part of what God was doing. And he was overjoyed when God would act in it you know, on his behalf. He was overjoyed at the opportunity to serve God. He danced in the streets. A king dancing in the streets is not something that would happen at the time. It's pretty undignified. And you know what? He says, I'm so overjoyed at God that this is what I'll do. I'll dance in the aisles and I'll love it. Um, this is who this is who David was. Um, some other things that I didn't include in my list. Um, David was a man who took care of people even though he didn't have to. He meets one of Saul's nephews who's crippled, right? Gets crippled in the the last battle. And the guy calls David out, says, you killed Saul. He says, I didn't kill Saul. And I could have you killed for saying that. And then he says, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. And he takes this guy into his house and feeds him. He eats at his table. Why? Because he was one of Saul's descendants. And he says, Saul was God's anointed. This is the right thing to do. He takes care of people that are weaker than him, right? Acts. Rightly toward those he has authority over them. That's how God designed men to be. This is the king face of manhood. The other one is the warrior, right? The warrior is conquering energy. This is the go out and do it thing, right? This is the reason men give poor advice. Because when my wife says, I'm upset and I'm crying, and I say, let me tell you how to fix this problem, right? I'm, let's, let's take care of this. <laughs> this is the, the, a part of us that wants to do things, that wants to get it done. Um, this is the part, like like you see this in David because he's devoted to honoring God even when it doesn't make sense. David who goes out to fight. David who who stands up to the, the bullies of the world, really, to Goliath. Um, we see this with Jesus. When Jesus encounters a man who says, you know what all these miracles you're performing? Evil spirit. Probably a demon. He says, you know what all these miracles I'm performing? They're... Done by the Holy Spirit. And he says, This is what you're doing is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And you can be forgiven for anything, but you talk bad about the Spirit, and there ain't nothing for you. Right? Like, this is the serious, don't mess with it guy. Right? This is the guy who charges into the market and chases people out who are selling things that don't belong there. Um, This is the part of the man that makes things right, wrong, or makes wrong things right say that right or it comes out wrong. This is the doer. The doer, the warrior in us, responds to the king, right? Like, if I don't have standards by which I live, then the warrior part of me can destroy everything I come near, right? Or can run away to Canada so I don't have to face things down because it's easier, right? Like, like, real men stand up and take care of business, and we take care of business according to standards of right and wrong. So, I'll do right by you, because this is the way it has to be. I'll defend the weak, because this is the way it has to be. This the guy who follows the rules, the guy that makes it happen. Everybody with me? Um, these two faces. how does this play out? First off, it provides us a model. Um, as men, it provides us a model for how to execute manhood, right? Um, be righteous, do right based on your righteousness. Um, in a more simple sense, this is about imitating Christ. David was a man after, his own, after God's own heart because he cared more about doing God's deal than anything else. Um, and this is what we're called to be. Um, admittedly, we're sinful, right? So we're going to fail sometimes. But this is what we're called to be. It can only be accomplished by grace. God helps us. We don't do it on our own. Um, and God searches for people like this. There's a spot in the province that says, um, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking for a man whose heart is completely his. Right? Like God looks for men whose hearts belong to him, and he looks for people who belong to him. Um, we're going to see a lot of this as it relates to how we deal with sin, how we deal with joy, how we deal with the end of our lives, how we deal with everything over the next few weeks. Um, the big application and the big thing I want you to walk away with today is, where's my heart at? Right? Is my heart more concerned about me? Or am I devoted to what God wants from me? Is my heart more concerned with my pride and, and my possession and these things? Or is my heart focused on, like, following through with God's deal? Um, men in particular, um, where is my heart? Do I live by standards? Do I take care of the people who need to be taken care of? Do I do the right thing even when I don't want to do the right thing? Do I admit that I'm wrong even when I don't want to admit that I'm wrong? Um, am I living up to this standard? Am I the man God created be, me to be? Um, and as we call up um, the the musicians and my guys who are doing communion today, um, as, as we come forward, which you should do now... <laughs> Not very good at that smooth transition. Um, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. And as we're taking the Lord's Supper, um, look at your heart. What? Oh, communion's back there. Can somebody run grab the communion? <laughs> how did that happen? Oh, I was supposed to do it? I don't remember that. See how that fit with the servant? <laughs> um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, uh, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And, and what the Lord's Supper is, and, and everybody who believes in Jesus is welcome to participate in this. If you're saved by the blood of Christ, this is something we're commanded to do. Um, and so, <laughs> um, as we participate in this, look at your heart and ask yourself, Oh, let me put that up there, and then I'll take that. Um, look in your heart and ask yourself, where am I at before God? Is my heart whole? Do I need to be forgiven? Do I need to be made right again? Um, And remember that Jesus shed his blood for us. Um, And as we drink the, the juice this morning, we drink it remembering that Christ died for us. He shed his blood to make our hearts perfect again.